Well, good morning. I'm sorry, Danny, but I can dance like that. You're just going to have to take my word for it because I'm not going to prove it. Sorry. You trust me, right? I mean, those were my family members. That was Jesse, Jolie, and Jenna Ballou. And uh, they're three sisters who are cousins of mine. But I promise you the dancing talent landed right there on the family and did not spill over anywhere else. So I appreciate, I just appreciate seeing people using the gifts that God has given them like that to, to glorify Him. And that's what they do. And that was just so awesome. So thank you girls for doing that. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Romans chapter 12 one more time. Today we're going to finish up chapter 12. Out of everything that we've looked at in here, I think this is probably my favorite part that we're going to see. I know that first two verses are what people usually quote the most out of chapter 12, and we really don't give a lot of thought to the rest of it. But what we're going to look at today, I think you're going to Uh, be able to see from now on in a little different light. So picking up where we left off last week, we're going to start in verse 9. So let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord this morning. Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, Serving the Lord, rejoice in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word. Lord, it is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And God, I was just thinking this morning of how, um, because your word, we are so blessed with the way it is so available to us here, here in our culture, in this country. Lord, I think we take for granted sometimes knowing that when we are reading the words in this book here, we are reading things that are straight from the throne room of heaven. So, God, I thank you for the privilege of doing that. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and open open our eyes to the truth you want to reveal to us about your Son, Jesus Christ, that we could leave here changed because we had an encounter with him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this last part of chapter 12 is obviously full of nothing but straightforward instruction. Every line in this is either do this or don't do that. And this is one of those texts that uh, seems to support the common assumption that some people have 
that say that Christianity is nothing but a bunch of rules. And it's also a text that, if read the wrong way, will generally lead to one of two outcomes. It could lead to a performance-based life that measures itself against this checklist of behaviors, or it could lead to self-condemnation and discouragement, knowing that you don't live up to these things very well. One outcome is self-righteousness, the other is self-condemnation. So we have to be careful how we read and interpret this because our natural tendency is to read it in such a way that we completely disobey verse 3, which tells us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And so in either case, whether we read it in a way that produces performance-based self-righteousness or we read it in a way that produces destructive self-condemnation and guilt, both of those are the result of reading this thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Now, our answer to those who claim that Christianity is all about rules is that, no, it's not about rules. What do we say? It's about relationship. That's right. A relationship with Jesus. But my question is, if that statement is true, then how do you square that with this text here? Because we obviously see the rules, but where's the relationship? And I know some of you would probably answer that and say, well, you can't really live the way that Paul's talking about here unless you have a relationship with Jesus. Our relationship with him is what enables us to live according to these instructions. And that's true, but I believe there's more to it than that. Maybe not more, but that that needs to be fleshed out. Because what does that mean exactly? How does that work? Because there are many people who have a relationship with Jesus, but are still quick to take passages like this and and turn them into uh, effort-based religion. And when I say religion, again, I'm talking about attempting to leverage God's favor, his blessing through our good behavior. It's the, if I do this for God, then God's going to do this for me mentality. Remember, one of the main points from last week was that Christianity is not a duty-driven or effort-based religion. It is the outflow of of a joyous relationship with Jesus Christ. But if we take these instructions in Romans 12 and use them as a guide, a checklist, a measure of how well we are doing, then that is not outflow. That is effort-driven production. And so how do we make this outflow? Well, let me ask you something. Since we have now read these 13 exhortations, five minutes ago, hadn't been very long, how many of you of them do you remember? How many can you name again without looking back at it? Did, did anything here just jump at, out at you and just grab you and captivate you to where you just feel something powerful going on the inside right now? It could have. But I would venture to say that it it probably didn't. 
I mean, what are you going to remember from this text an hour from now? Or two or three hours from now when you're sitting in front of the television watching the last round of the Masters digesting the large meal that you just had for lunch? Are you going to be thinking about how reading these 13 instructions really impacted you today? What effect will this text have had on you? I mean, after reading this, are any of you right now, can any of you say, now that we have read this text, I'm going to leave here different than I was when I came in. Are you going to be changed in any way in your love, in your hatred for evil, in your brotherly affection, in your zeal, in your hope, in your patience? How will this text have affected you? Some of you may be thinking, well, Jason, that depends on how you preach it in the next 20 minutes. (laughs) Well, let's just pretend for a minute that I don't. What if I just say, you know what, I'm not going to break this down today. I'm just going to let the power of God's word do what it does in you by itself. It doesn't need my help anyway. If we entered entered the service right now and you were all dismissed to go home, will you leave here changed because we read through Romans 12, 9 through 21? Truth is, you should be able to read the Bible on your own and be impacted by it in a powerful way without having to rely on me to break it down for you every time. And you will be able to if you're reading it the right way, and I want you to be able to do that. But most of us don't read passages like this the right way. We just quickly read through something like this and and hope for the best that something's going to happen supernaturally. At the very least, we can feel good about ourselves that we actually opened up our Bible for a change and took 15 seconds of our time to, to, to read something in there. But having our hearts and our minds transformed... I'm not going to say that can't happen because I'm not going to underestimate what God can use in anything to really speak to someone. But the truth is, rarely does it happen reading a text like this that way. Why is that? I mean, if the Bible is supposed to be so powerful, how come we can read a list of instructions like this, even instructions in the New Testament, and not be affected by it in in the least bit? The answer to that is because of the first point in your notes. The heart and the mind are not transformed by a list of instructions. They are transformed by a revelation of, of Jesus Christ. Unless we have an encounter with Jesus, we're not going to be changed. And we can't expect to be changed unless we encounter him. And so the key, like you've heard me say many times now, is to find Jesus in the text. The mistake we often make with any passage in the Bible is putting ourselves in the center of it and making it all about us rather than putting Jesus at the center of it and making it all about him. And when we uh, make verses 9 through 21 strictly about us and completely leave Jesus out of it, well, then we make it a dry, powerless list of rules. 
And the result is either going to be arrogant self-righteousness or destructive self-loathing. Scripture relates to us only in the way that we relate to Jesus. Because all of Scripture is ultimately about Him. And so everything we read in the Bible should cause us to fall more in love with him. It should bring us to some revelation of him, being able to see him in a way that we may not have seen him before or or be reminded about some aspect of him that we need to be reminded about in that moment. But, But in order to be changed, in order to be impacted, we've got to have a revelation of Jesus. Now, I'm about to make a statement that if you were in the B3 class on Wednesday nights when we were talking about how to read the Bible, you've heard this. But those of you who did not hear this, when you hear this at first, you may find it a bit, a bit shocking and you're going to question it at first. But I want you to hear me out and really think about this. It's the next point in your notes that says this. Life doesn't come by attempting to obey the commands of the Bible. It doesn't. And to some of you, that's even going to sound a little sacrilegious. But listen to the next part. Life comes by finding Jesus. What that means then is if, if you read this text in Romans 12 and you try your absolute best to follow all 13 of these instructions, you are not going to find life in doing that. You're going to find some things. You're going to find morality. And you're going to find some of the benefits that come from doing some of these things. But you're also going to find frustration and failure. Because there's going to be times where you're going to fail in trying to live up to some of these things. But you won't find life. In order to find life in this, you first have to find Jesus in this. And some of you may be thinking, well, Jason, do you got any scripture to back up that statement you just made? As a matter of fact, I do. Look at John 5. 39. It'll be up here on the screen. It's the words of Jesus himself. He's talking to the religious leaders and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, these scriptures that testify of me and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And so these people were reading the the laws and the rules in the Old Testament and trying their best to follow them, thinking that by doing so, they were going to earn eternal life with God and have his favor and be in his good standing. And Jesus is saying, you don't get it. The scriptures that you're studying and trying so hard to follow, they're all about me. I am the only place where you're going to find life. And favor and good standing with God. Now listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't obey the commands of the Bible. Or that it's not important to do so. What I am saying is that we won't be able to follow them if we don't first have an encounter with Jesus. By finding him and having a supernatural encounter with him, our natural response to that is going to be... To obey the commands. 
Next point. Obedience to the commands will be the outflow of our encounter with Jesus. And right out next to that point, you can write this scripture reference, John 14, 23. That's where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He didn't say, if you love me, you better keep my commands. This wasn't a threat Jesus was making. It was a simple statement of fact. If you love me, you will. Your love for me is naturally going to be expressed through your obedience to my commands. So what then is the key for being able to obey the commands more? Be able to love Jesus more. It would benefit us a whole lot better then if by reading the scripture it increases our love for him. So that's why we need to look for him. And everything that we read in scripture. So let's do that here with this text. The first exhortation Paul gives is to love without hypocrisy. Now out of all the words that Paul could have used, it's interesting that he chose to use this one. I mean, he could have said, let love be great. Let love be bold. Let love be constant. He could have used many of the other words to tell us how to love, but he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Why is that? Because it is the dead opposite of verse 3, which says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. The hypocrite constantly thinks of himself. He's always thinking, how can this make me look good? How can I create a good impression of me. What can I do that people are going to think better of me? Jesus pointed this out in Matthew 6, 5 when he's telling his followers. He said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to stand in the middle of the synagogue and out on the street corner when they're praying to be seen by men. It's giving the appearance of doing good but just for the sole purpose that you're going to look good. Just so you'll be liked and admired by others. The best example that we have been given of someone who loved without hypocrisy is Jesus. Jesus didn't come to be popular with the people. He came to fulfill the desire of the Father. And in Mark 10, 45, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. He said things that he knew wouldn't be popular. He did things that he knew people were going to absolutely despise him and hate him for. But he said them and did them because he wasn't at all about exalting himself in the eyes of the people. He was all about exalting the Father. He knew that he would be exalted eventually, but it would have to come from the Father and not from the people. In John 17, he was praying just before his arrest and execution. And in verse 4, he prayed to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. And that would happen but not through the fanfare and adulation of the people, but through his death on the cross 
and his resurrection from the grave. Jesus loved without hypocrisy. The next exhortation for us is to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. We see this in the way that Jesus passionately loved his disciples and he humbled himself by getting down on the ground and and washing their dirty feet the last night that he spent with them. Next, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Every one of these things are a perfect description of Jesus, but I want to focus in on one of them in particular. It's the phrase, um, persevering in tribulation. The word Paul used in the Greek there literally means to, to remain under. And so it means to remain under the test, under the tribulation that you are going through in a God-honoring manner, not seeking to quickly escape it, but eager to learn the lessons that it was sent to teach. Now I'm going to say that again, and I'm actually going to put it up here on the screen because some of you need to write this down and keep this in mind, keep this in front of you. It means to remain under the test you are going through in a God-honoring manner, not seeking to quickly escape it, but eager to learn the lessons that it was sent to teach. Sent by who? By God. A lot of times when we encounter trouble, we are so quick to want to blame everything on the devil. Satan can't do anything in this world without God's permission. He's not in control. God is. We see the example of this with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Knowing what was about to fall on him, he prayed, Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. And what we see right there in that moment was his completely human side that was tempted to quickly escape the tribulation that he was coming under. But right after that, he submitted and he prayed, yet not my will, but yours be done. He remained under the tribulation, trusting the Father with the eventual outcome. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. As the soldiers pounded the nails in his hands and his feet, and the religious leaders came by and spit on him and hurled all kinds of abuse and and curses at him, Jesus, in that moment of agony, cried out to the Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To the people who were committing this horrific abuse to an innocent man. He blessed those who were cursing him. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends 70 of his followers out to minister in his authority. And they came back 
in verse 17, it says, They came back rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them in his name. And Jesus rejoiced with them, saying, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And I can just imagine him giving high fives to them as he's, he's saying that. He was rejoicing with them in, in, in their rejoicing. In John chapter 11, he was going with Mary to the tomb where her brother Lazarus had been buried days before. And in verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then verse 35, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. Which is interesting because he knew that he was about to do something that nobody in the history of mankind had seen happen before. He was about to raise this dead, stinking corpse from the dead. He was going to call Lazarus to walk out. And he knew how amazed and excited they were going to be. But here in this moment, he's crying with them because of his love and his compassion and his empathy for those that he loves. He rejoices with those who rejoice. And he weeps with those who weep. Even today. Verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Matthew chapter 9. Starting in verse 10. It says, Then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners." He associated with the lowly, and he still associates with the lowly today. Let's read the rest of this at the end of Romans. Verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far it depends on you. Be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Not be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. In the Garden of Gethsemane again. The temple guards come, being led by Judas, who approaches Jesus and greets him and kisses him on the cheek to signify to the temple guards exactly who it was they were coming to take. A more evil and sinister way to betray the Son of God could not 
have been written. They violently seize Jesus. And Peter comes to the defense of his master and he pulls out his sword and he takes a swipe at them, cutting off the ear of one of the servants of the temple guard. And Jesus, in that moment of chaos and the heavy tribulation that was just now beginning to pour on him, in that moment he doesn't let the situation affect him. He walks over, he stoops down and picks up the ear of his enemy, puts it back on and heals him. He turned to Peter and said, Peter, put your sword back in its place. Then in verse 53, he says, do you not think then I can appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. And you know that in that moment, as the darling of heaven was being manhandled by these wicked, evil men, that there had to be at least 12 legions of angels standing there at the ready with their swords drawn, just waiting, chomping at the bit for the word to strike. But no, Jesus wasn't going to take his own revenge. He was leaving room for the wrath of God. And you know where that room was? It was him. He was the room that was left for God's wrath. Think about this. The wrath of God that you know had to be burning so intensely for the wicked sin that Judas was committing and the sin that these evil men were committing was about to be completely poured out, but not on them was going to be poured out on Jesus. Instead, God's wrath for what they were doing to his son was going to be poured out on the one that they were committing the sin against. Gosh, that is crazy grace. Crazy mercy. That is hilarious mercy, like we learned about last week. It is so beyond us to think how that could even be possible, that he would do that for you. Jesus overcame evil with nothing but good. And we just found Jesus in this list of 13 instructions. And I hope by doing so that it would increase your love and your affections for him even a little bit. And maybe you are here today and you're going through something right now and you needed to be reminded this morning of who Jesus is. 
Maybe you're feeling alone in something that you are weeping over right now and you needed to be reminded that Jesus is right there in the middle of it weeping with you. Even though that he knows the good that's going to come of this, even though he knows that this is being allowed for your good and his glory, his love and his compassion for you, he's crying right there with you. He's saying, just trust me, child. Just trust me. We're going to get through this. Maybe you're going through a tribulation and you're having a hard time keeping your eyes on Jesus in the middle of it. You need to be reminded that he empathizes with you with what you are going through because he remained under a tribulation too, wanting so bad at first to escape it, but trusting the Father and choosing to remain under it. He's been there. He knows what you're going through. Or maybe you're one like so many who is struggling with a sin that you cannot seem to shake the guilt and condemnation of. And you're doubting very seriously whether or not God can really forgive you for it. Look, if he took the punishment for the treasonous sin that Judas committed, if he could take that for Judas, he took it for yours. It's covered under his blood, thrown as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? I don't know. Too far to measure, I can tell you that. So far that God completely forgets about it. And there's a great example of how, how finding Jesus works in this. You see, if I was eat up with guilt and condemnation of the sin that I had committed, how is reading a list of instructions going to set me free from that? If I make them all about me, it's not going to. As a matter of fact, it's probably going to increase my guilt knowing that I can't live up to all of that. The guilt and condemnation is going to be the very thing that keeps me from being able to do very many of these things here. I mean, no matter how many times I read these instructions, no matter how well I'm able to even memorize these things or how, how good I am or how hard I try to following every one of these things, the guilt and condemnation and shame is going to completely hold me back and keep me from being able to live up to them. But if I encounter Jesus in these instructions... And in so doing, I get set free from that guilt, that condemnation, and my shame is removed. Then now I'm better able to live out these things. And they're actually going to become outflow because I'm so amazed at his grace and his forgiveness and so in love with him for him setting me free. Now I just want to live my life as a thank you to him. And so I'll start naturally living a life that lines up with the end of Romans 12 here. And I'll close with this last takeaway from this text. Many people will read these instructions as a guide and a formula for gaining God's blessing or earning his favor. They will look at it in the religious way that I talked about earlier as a way to gain leverage with God. 
without letting Jesus interpret this. Many will take this as, if I do these things on this list more, God's going to like me more. Or if I try real hard at these things, I mean, in the back of your mind, a lot of people are like, hey, because of the effort that I put out in trying to do this, God owes me. God owes no man a thing. Some people think my standing with God is going to be a whole lot better if I can just live this way better. I can do these things better. The truth is, you're standing with God. His blessings on you and his favor to you are not based on how well you behave. Every one of those things are found in Christ alone. By finding Jesus in these commands, we just saw that Jesus obeyed every one of them perfectly. He fulfilled and obeyed every one of these commands on your behalf. And if you are in him, you have his favor and his standing with God. His favor with God, his standing with the Father is now credited to you. Not because of what you do, but because of what he did. Because he came and did for you what you were unable to do for yourself. And knowing that should make you so full of his love, that it just begins to spill out in love to others. To where these things at the end of Romans 12 just become the spillover of our relationship with him. In order to find life and to be able to live that life in a Christ-exalting way, you first have to have an encounter with Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are so, so good. Your ways are so far beyond us. So, Lord, I pray right now, just as Paul did, that you would grant us the power to be able to grasp even a little bit how huge your love is. God, I lift up those who are in here today who some of the things I said speak directly to what they are going through right now. Pray for the one that is carrying a a load of guilt and shame. That they would see your hilarious grace and mercy. And lay their burden down at your feet. And you would remove that from them. And they'd be able to walk out of here lighter. Be able to see more clearly than they ever have before. God, I pray for those who are still caught up. In the bondage of thinking they have got to prove themselves to you in some way. To show you how serious they really are. How much they really mean something that they may have promised you. God, I pray that you would break through the error that they have bought into. And let them see that their standing with you is not based on on any promise that they make to you, but it is based on the promise that you made to them in Jesus.
Jesus, would you please just reveal yourself to those of us who desperately need to see you right now. In the fog of the tribulation that some are going through, I pray that you would shine through that. In the despair and the hurt that some are experiencing, I pray that they will feel your healing balm over that pain and that wound. Even wounds that have, may have been there for years and years, God, I pray that they would find healing in you, King Jesus. Holy Spirit, I just want you to come right now and do what you do best, and that is to take the truth from your word and begin to just do heart surgery in us and transform our minds, that our thoughts and our actions would line up more with you. And so we submit ourselves to you right now and say, have your way. Let your will be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.